Welcome to this week's edition of the Interpreter Podcast. I'm your host, Professor Matt Shenkiewicz from Boston College, and I'm joined, as always, by the managing editor of the Interpreter Magazine, James Miller. Good evening, James. Good evening, Matt. So we have a, a special edition of the show today. Uh, the Oscar nominations came out last week, and one of the nominations for Best Documentary was the film Winter on Fire. Uh, we decided to dedicate today's program to it. Uh, we're going to be bringing in a documentary scholar, and then uh, we're very excited to bring in the director of the film Winter on Fire. Uh, before we uh, get into the, the hardcore critical stuff with uh, with Professor Dave Risha uh, or some of the background behind-the-scenes stuff with uh, with the film director uh why don't you give us your opening opinions and and uh impressions of the film jim yeah so uh first of all i should say winter on fire is a netflix original so you can see it on netflix i'm I'm sure it's on dvd and blu-ray or whatever um uh it's a very powerful film i think that's 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 clear uh that uh follows a group of protesters um uh, from sort of the start of the uh, the pro-European Union Euromaidan protests in Ukraine in uh, November of 2013, and uh, follows uh, that that group all the way through to uh, the day after the Yanukovych government uh, flees Ukraine and effectively uh, the Euromaidan revolution succeeds. Um, uh, and in between, um, lots of inspiring and horrifying and uh, just a visually incredible things. Yeah, yeah. no, th- this is a, a uh, regardless of your politics, uh, the, the simple uh, just visual, uh, just uh, diversity and sort of intensity uh, is, is worth checking out. Uh, you know, you've got these incredible images of snow falling and pyres of, of fire, like giant, giant f- uh, fires being surrounded by thousands and thousands of people. Uh, if nothing else, this is, is one of the most visually striking documentaries that I've ever seen. Yeah, and, and you know, as someone who was reporting on it while it was happening, um, uh, not being there, you know, I, I, de- I was not there. Uh, but what I was doing is compiling these videos that were YouTube videos and live streams and pictures from uh, journalists, but also just from citizens who were who were on the ground there. And, um, you know, and and I was struck at the time about the, you know, these are tough people, these protesters. You know, they were very dedicated, uh, overwhelmingly nonviolent and uh, and the violence um, inflicted upon them was just um, uh, really really horrifying. Um, uh, but I was also impressed by the film, and, it, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in, in a minute. I was impressed that I had seen so little footage. Mm. Um, you know, so a lot of the the sort of uh, iconic um, footage. You know, there's I, I think in in some ways there's even much much better footage from on the ground that is in the documentary. So um, it brought back uh, it brought back a lot of memories. I think it's easy to uh, and 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 there's there's criticisms to be made here, and, and we're going to get into that I think in a minute. Um, but I think uh, it's easy to get lost in the politics. When we talk about what happened in Euromaidan, Mm. it's easy to get lost in Ukrainian domestic politics. It's easy to get lost in sort of geopolitics. It's easy to talk about, 
you know, Russia and what happened next in Crimea and the war in Eastern Ukraine and all this mess. Right, to turn it um, into a, a sort of a set of chess moves in which the, the people involved are, are just, you know, pawns and and knights and so on. And, and I do think the film does a pretty spectacular job of, of putting faces on what could be uh, a more or less uh, sort of, you know, very calculated uh, um, top-down view. They, they, they put you right on the ground. It does. I mean, the reality is, and, 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 and this is the fact. The fact is that the Ukrainian, the, the previous Ukrainian government, uh, the, the, the Yanukovych administration, um, it fled Ukraine. It was not deposed by a military coup. It was not deposed by a revolution. They fled Ukraine, and they fled Ukraine after uh, the police unsuccessfully uh, tried tried to remove these protesters from Maidan Square to the point where, um, you know, they wouldn't go. And, and I think it was clear to Yanukovych uh, and, and the rest of his regime that his country would crumble um, if, uh, you know, because the, the will of the people uh, would not be crushed. And, um, you know, and, and it's easy to... Um, to lose all that, you know, if history is history is only sort of written by the winners, in the sense that um, history is written by the powerful people, right? But the the people who who were in the square were not the powerful people. Um, they're not the and and frankly, they're not the people who are in charge of the government now. Um, and it, you know, and 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 Ukraine's uh, struggles, I think, continue in many ways. Um, and, you know, I think Russia plays a, a major part in that. Um, but, you know, it's it's also not all Russia's fault. Um, but uh, but it's certainly not the fault of the people who are in the the, the Euro Maidan Square. Um, so it was uh, it was very impressive, uh, a very impressive documentary. And now we'd like to welcome to the show Professor David Risha. Uh, David is an assistant professor of media and film studies at Birmingham Southern College, uh, and he's the author of an excellent book, The Cinema of Errol Morris, uh, out from Wesleyan University Press just last year. Uh, he's an expert in documentary history and theory, and uh, we're very excited to hear what he has to say about Winter on Fire. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you for having me. So uh, this, I don't know if this is the easiest question we could ask or the hardest question that we could ask somebody uh, of your uh, level of, of knowledge and, and, uh, and uh, devotion to documentary film, but did you like Winter on Fire? Uh, it's, it's both uh, an easy and a hard question. I did. That's the easy part. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And, you know, I think that one of the things I liked most about it is that a, a film on this topic could really, I mean, where there's so much, you know, historical complexity and political complexity could spend a lot of time uh, examining all of these different contexts. You know, uh, a comparable example might be uh, an, an earlier film called Gate, Gate of Heavenly Peace from 1995, and it's about the 1989 protests at Tiananmen Square. Mm. It not only examines, that film not only examines, you know, the, the cultural and historical context at the time, but over the last century. And it really, you know, in that way becomes very informative. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the, the heart of uh, Winter on Fire is, is this fantastic observational footage that they have right. of the protests being there. And they make that footage the heart of the film. And, you know, there's, there's a little bit of information, expository information at the beginning of the film, you know, drawing out some, some political context for, for the protests. But then it, it just really embraces 
the idea of what it was like to live through these protests uh, in, in a little bit more context, you know, sprinkles in throughout. But I think the most compelling part about it is is, is really attaching yourselves to the protesters and and the movement going on at the time. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I found... <clears throat> somewhat striking in the film uh, the lack of, of apparent interest in sort of uh, you know justifying uh uh, the the actions particularly on, on the part of the regime right we don't really get any any perspective from the regime what they what their stance and this is why they're uh, so hostile to the protesters but I think you're right in part what you know that's driven from the footage right the footage that that's available here is from the people in Euromaidan f- from the people who are uh, sort of uh, facing it directly and so I, I think you're right it's it's interesting uh, what what do well, you and, and yeah. You know, Matt, I'll, I'll add to that for a minute. You know, I lived uh, these protests in a, in, a, in a perhaps a unique perspective um, because unlike the film, the filmmakers were on the ground, um, mm-hmm. you know, during the, during the events that were transpiring. Um, I was not. I was um, – but I was reporting on the events that were transpiring in real time. And first of all, I was struck that um, I recognized almost none of the video that was used in mm. in this documentary, mm. which means that a lot of it was, um, you know, taken by the documentary filmmakers themselves. Mm. So they they really uh, decided to uh, sort of focus on uh, on their own perspective, on the perspectives of the relatively few um group of of protesters who were on the ground i say relatively few because they were you know a uh, hundred thousand people in that square and and you know they might have interviewed what eight or ten of them right so right. um they they sort of stuck with and, and they stuck with a lot of these characters um you know sort of throughout the uh the momentum of the protest so you know they they avoided for better or for uh, i think for better and for worse um all this external politics i mean to me like so much of the focus especially in the last um you know two years um you know, so much of the focus is on the politics, right? And, and we've sort of forgotten the narrative of, of sort of what happened on the ground. Right. The people tend to disappear. Uh, and so, Dave, you gave uh, one historical example, the, the the Gate of Heavenly Peace about Tiananmen Square. Could you help us uh, frame this film historically a little bit, uh, perhaps in the context of protest documentary or, or maybe political documentary more broadly? Where do you see this film fitting into that history? Sure. I mean, there's been a, you know, recently there's been quite a few documentaries uh about um protests you know in this in this it, throughout the world uh the year before that there was the um uh the maidan uh a, a documentary called maidan about the same uh mm-hmm. subject matter and that was it, it it's an interesting contrast to winter on fire uh because it uh it, it's much more almost kind of detached poetic observation of, of what was happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the year before that, there's a really fantastic uh, documentary called The Square on the Egyptian Revolution of 20, 2011. So I think this fits within a recent trend of looking at, you know, protests in, you know, uh, around the world in, in these, these pivotal uh, political moments. Um, you know, but but there's been a long tradition. You know, documentary filmmaking has been you know political and very explicitly political uh, from the very beginning. You know, there was certainly in the 1970s there are a lot of you know 
documentaries in the war, like uh, War at Home from 1979, or labor movement films like Harlan County, USA, or The Wobblies. Uh, so, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's so easy to see just a very, very long traditions of documentary filmmakers who are interested in, you know, e- exploring political problems and, you know, people in, intimately involved in these, in these political movements. Uh, I think that uh, that uh, obviously a uh, big chunk of the interest in this film comes from the Oscar nomination. Uh, those films that you've been describing in, in terms of the, the sort of political orientation of, of documentary filmmaking, have they been sort of recognized by the Academy? Or is that the sort of the, are these the sort of films that have gotten attention or is there something new uh, about a film like this uh, being recognized? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the you know, Harlan County won an Academy Award uh, that was on the uh, – the coal miner strikes in the 1970s, which is about, um, you know, the anti-war movement in Madison, Wisconsin, that won a, an Academy Award in, in 1979. So, but, but then again, there are, you know, lots of movies that uh, are recognized by the Academy that, that don't have such a, that are political maybe, but aren't so um, maybe aggressively at, uh, oriented around advocacy. Mm. But yeah, I think that the, the documentary uh, portion of the Academy Awards has had a pretty good tradition of acknowledging, you know, political films, political documentaries. I'll ask you to speculate, and I, I acknowledge this is speculation, uh, but, you know, you started off describing the film and noting that it didn't really delve deeply into the politics. It certainly has politics. It's impossible to avoid them. Uh, but it doesn't, uh, you know, it, the, while the film certainly does not make the, the, the regime in Ukraine look good, uh, for example, it doesn't really discuss the role that Russia plays, for example, uh, sure. which might be more controversial. And, and I'm, again, I'm asking you to speculate, uh, but do you think that there's something that, that makes this film make Maybe more palatable to you know like an awards committee because it sticks with the personal experiences and tries to maybe uh, leave at arm's length some of those bigger uh, potentially more contentious political questions. Absolutely, uh, and I think probably for two reasons: one that you you just described the fact that it doesn't step on too many toes. Now I don't think that there's a lot of you know voting academy members that are going to be you know upset about the you know lack of. Uh, you know, the kind of Russian perspective in the film. Mm. Um, but I think certainly the fact that the film focuses on individual experiences makes it a, you know, a much more, perhaps a much more emotionally engaging film and emotionally powerful film, uh, as opposed to maybe focusing more on information or education, which, you know, it, it might, it, it might be maybe better journalism, but isn't going to be as perhaps emotionally engaging, as I said before. And I think, you know, over, over time, I think that if you look at the films that the Academy Award, the, the documentaries that the Academy really recognizes, it tends to be the ones that focus on individual experiences. You know, there's a, a, a whole bunch of, uh, well, there, there's always been a lot of documentaries, obviously, on, on the Holocaust and World War II. And I think the ones that really have stood out to the Academy are the ones that, that really ramp up that that sense of um, intimacy and empathy um, between the viewer and the, and the people in the film. Mm. And of course, those those documentaries, uh, at least in the big, broad political sense, tend to have a, a sort of easy time distinguishing. Uh, well, I, I want to say distinguishing good guys and bad guys, but at least sort of uh, the orientation of the viewer is assumed to be, you know, for example, anti-Nazi. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a, taken as a, as a given, right? One of the complicated aspects of this film is while. Uh, Certainly, uh, 
uh, when you watch this film, it's hard to not be incredibly sympathetic to uh, the protesters. Uh, we don't have uh, any sort of unanimity in the United States, really, a, a, about this issue generally. We tend to yeah. be pro-Ukrainian. We tend to question the regime. We tend to be a little uh, uh, suspicious of the Russians. But it's not – it doesn't have that clear – uh, you know, clear-cut good versus evil thing to it, which I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, this is sort of my question too, right? Is is that, um, and and I don't know, like I'm too close to the politics of it to uh, to know what the average viewer is going to 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 see when they watch this film. Mm. Um, but you know, were the politics removed to the point where um, you know the film? didn't make sense like are people's <laughs> motivations you know what i mean like well i yeah for sure i mean what i experience and again i'm p- perhaps a little bit too close to it as well not not nearly in in as much as you are jim uh but the and i, I guess let's put put this to you dave uh the the police and, and the berkut come off as really really monstrous figures uh <laughs> and you could argue that they're that perhaps that's very accurate but part of what makes them particularly monstrous is that at least it seemed to me that, th- that there was uh, in, in watching it you really had no idea idea why they were doing this i guess as somebody who who comes to it from a sort of documentary perspective instead of the politics uh did you find that also did you find that it was hard to figure out why they were doing it and and if so what would the effect be i did you know i'm I'm much more of the average viewer in terms of you know my my knowledge about about the conflict is very you know just from you know basic news reporting i'm not intimately familiar with the nuances of the political conflict you know i think that there is two different ways that i i read that you know, the, the less generous way to the filmmakers was this is an advocacy film and they just really want to present, you know, the, the, the position, the point of view that they're that they're interested in. I think that, you know, a more generous way to look at that is that because the film is really focused on, you know, this this experiential question, what it was like to live through the protests and what it was like to be, you know, there at the time. You know, a lot of the people in the interviews were were expressing confusion in the same way, you know, even though I'm sure that they, you know, know a lot more about the context. And certainly I do. Mm. They they were still confused. They were also confused or expressed confusion about why, you know, why the police were um, in the government special forces were using such tactics. So I think you might be able to say. You know, being generous to the filmmakers, that they were part of that experience of being in that protest movement was a certain kind of confusion, not really understanding mm. from the other side of the tactics they were employing. No, that, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, is, that's why we brought you on, Dave. That's a great point. Yeah, this is a great point. So um, uh, two things I have to say about it. First of all, nothing in this film is in English except for... Uh, the subtitles and the 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 like text uh, in the intro and and the uh, conclusion. Um, so you know, there's no English overdubs. So so uh, you know, to the people on the ground, I guess uh, you know, the people involved in the filmmaking, the people who are being interviewed, they understand the politics. But the other thing is, there's a certain sense if you look at a story like Ukraine, if and 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 frankly, as someone who's worked closely with activists in a lot of different countries, you know, if you divorce the politics from the reality on the ground, what you had in Ukraine is you had Ukrainians shooting Ukrainians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're Ukrainians shooting unarmed Ukrainians. Um, and, and, you know, so there's, there's this sort of humanity that comes from, you know, forget the politics, like, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get this sense, too, you know, it, there were a lot of um, 
uh, shots of faces of the police officers, yeah. which found um, to be uh, actually kind of powerful because they don't, uh, when you see their faces, they don't look like these, you know, uh, monster stormtroopers. And yet right. then the rest of the film, they're just like, you know, the, the face shields are down and uh, and they're just sort of mindlessly beating people. You know, they're, it's like a scene from, you know, a deleted scene from Star Wars because it would have gotten an R rating or something. It's awful. Yeah. No, it's it's a it, the uh, it, it is really striking the the extent to which the the imagery and we can talk about sort of the the sources of the imagery as best as we can understand them. But it is striking how it, there are moments right where we're close enough to to the police uh, to get a sense of them as people, but for the most part. You know, they're represented as helmets, uh, and there's, there are these uh, really powerful scenes where it's sort of a sea of black, and all you see is this little, like, pin drops, uh, pinpoints of light coming off of their helmets. Uh, it's sort of, like, completely dehumanizing, or it's hard to believe there are human beings in that. Uh, and I guess uh, to move this uh, to you, Dave, uh, obviously, while, while Jim is right, the, the documentary filmmakers were definitely uh, there on the ground, or at least people working uh, closely with the film, a lot of this footage uh, just as obviously came from other sources. Uh, there's a, a, I think, a really uh, kind of amazing scene with a with a dashboard cam uh, that that uh, shows uh, uh, the police stopping a car and beating in the windshield. It's really remarkable. And I was wondering, Dave, if you could just kind of uh, talk about the history of uh, maybe found footage in documentary or sort of externally, uh, you know, collected material and how that's changing today uh, when we're all constantly recording everything. Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a it's a big and really important question. Um, since the beginning of documentary, you know, documentary has been always intertwined with ethnographic cinema and ethnography. And, you know, for a long time, ethnographers have understood the problem of going into a different place and trying to record their way of life. And, you know, for, for decades now, um, you know, ethnographic filmmakers have tried to find ways to establish a collaborative relationship mm-hmm. with the people that they're filming uh, and the context that they're filming. So, so, so really there's, there's been a, there's been an emphasis of trying to bridge this gap between the filmmakers and the participants for a long time. Uh, there have been some really important moments. Uh, so for instance, the challenge for change uh, program in the national film, film board, film board of Can- Canada uh, was designed around giving people access, you know, normal, quote-unquote normal people, access to filmmaking equipment so they could use their own, uh, so they could make their own films. Uh, certainly with the rise of, of digital technology, the fact that you can record things so much cheaply than you used to, you don't need any, really a lot of special expertise, and the fact that you can edit your films you know, on your personal computers has just completely changed the prospects of allowing people to participate in in the filming. And, you know, when I was reading a little bit about the war on fire, you know, there are 28 credited cinematographers mm. uh, and that, that footage came from all over. Uh, so, so certainly the, the interest in involving people in the filmmaking process, participants in the, in the filmmaking process have been around for a long time, but there's been a shift in filmmakers, really their ability to do that. You know, I think the one example that, that comes to mind is uh, in 2006, there was a film called the war tapes mm. and it was about the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And 
all the footage, the vast majority of the footage were, was filmed by U.S. soldiers uh, that were in the experience. And I think that really it's, it's in the last you know, 10 or 15 years, it's, it's an exciting time because the prospects of allowing people into the filming process uh, and even into the editing process is just so much greater than it's always been. Mm. Does that uh, bring up questions of authorship? I mean, it's still fairly easy to, to explain what the director does, even in the context of not creating the footage, and, and there's been a tradition of that. But there, there does seem in a certain sense that this is a film made by the, the people of Euromaidan or something along those lines. Uh, is that well, something so, people are thinking about? So, Matt, let me, let me actually push back on that a little bit because it, um, that's a, that was actually not my impression. Um, you know, because as I said, you know, we collected, we were, you know, the interpreter was, was collecting all this found footage, YouTube videos, live streams, this, that, and the other thing. And, um, and, and what struck me about this, uh, movie was that a lot of those scenes were not in it. Um, right. So in other words, you could make, so, so you could make actually a whole other really compelling, uh, a documentary or, or 10 or a hundred using, um, s- using video that is completely authorless in the sense that, you know, you have no idea who made these videos or, mm-hmm. or who shot them, um, you know, or, or who owns them. Maybe. Right. And we will speak to, uh, to the director, uh, in the next segment of, of the episode. Uh, but Dave, what, what do you think of this question of, of authorship in the context of, uh, you know, crowdsource mass, uh, mass recording user, user content? It's a uh, it, it's a really it's a really hard one, and I, I I'm t- completely agreeing with with both of you know for, with both of you what you're saying on this. You know, even though there's footage coming from at least you know according to the dir- director from this footage coming from all these different people, there's there's a it, it's woven together, and the story is told as if it's a unified uh, mm-hmm. kind of a not necessarily a perspective, but kind of a perspective. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like it's fragmented in the into these individual perspectives in these right there are scenes that I, I want to get your perspective on this there are scenes where you would you know the the movement the action flows so smoothly let's say from outside of the church to inside of the church or something yeah. along these lines yeah. uh, that it almost seems like there was you know there was a, a storyboard or something right it's remarkable the way that, that it that it seems like a, a, un, a unified story absolutely and you know even even through the different interviews you know they have these different mm. subjects yeah. that, that talk about the experience there isn't a sense that there's any uh, divergence. Uh, it seems like the, uh, even those interviews are speaking from a pretty unified perspective of what the what the experience was like in the protest. So, yeah, I think the film made a deliberate effort to try to make make all of that different footage as as cohesive as possible. You know, and I think the interviews helped, and certainly, you know, they cut away to these digital maps to map out where everything is. And I think in those moments, it kind of makes all of that different stuff cohere a little bit as if it's all from, you know, an individual perspective almost. So uh, on this show, our main focus is politics uh, surrounding Russia, uh, but our next focus is just baseless uh, speculation about the future, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is, is one of my, my, my favorite pastimes. And so uh, how many of the Oscar-nominated documentaries have you seen, Dave? The, uh, to, to, re- to review, it's Amy, Cartel Land, the look, of, the look of Silence, What Happened, Miss Simone, and Winter on Fire. Uh, I've seen all but what happened, Miss Simone, and I know that that's on Netflix. So um, that'll be uh, next time I list. All right, so so you got to call it. 
Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, call for my favorite one, uh, which is the look of silence, which I think is, uh, Joshua Oppenheimer's, um, Mm -hmm. second film on, on the subject matter and is, uh, is, is really, uh, a complex, but, uh, really satisfying look at, um, at, at, at that issue. And, And uh, this being, uh, this being the, the, the sort of sequel or companion piece to the act of killing. Active killing exactly, uh, which is also a a beautiful. I think a, kind of in some ways a, a more problematic film, uh, but that's that's my best guess that that's that's the one that's going to win. R- remind me, did the act of killing win? Um, did not. I don't think. That's yeah. I don't think so. That's a good it, question. Though. It was nominated and it didn't win, which would uh, again baseless. Like we we sort of we, we <laughs> it's, it's it's more like rationalization than anything. <laughs> but it's like that. This is a good bit of logic, right? The act of killing was really well known. It was uh you know people found it uh, uh disturbing in good and bad ways. I think yeah. uh, maybe this film, uh, which is also about Indonesia, uh will uh will sort of be a like not quite career achievement. But sort of, uh, didn't they give like the last of the Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings, yeah, yeah. exactly. I was just thinking about that, <laughs> right? And it's just sort of a representative. Like this was a really cool, impressive body of filmmaking. And none of them is like necessarily the best that came out in a given year, but overall. So, all right, we'll put you down for the look of silence. Right. Uh, and then why don't we? Uh, why don't we uh, uh, give an opportunity for uh, for somebody in the audience to to check out your book, uh, the cinema uh, cinema of Errol Morris? Uh, give me a, a secret code word, Dave. Just pick one. Um, tabloid. Tabloid. All right, tabloid. Uh, if you tweet at Media Studied at Miller Mina M I L L E R M E N A, the phrase tabloid. Uh, hopefully, Dave will be able to get us an, an author's discount. But we will we, we will have sent out to you a copy of his excellent study on on this, the uh, films of Errol Morris. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for coming on and giving some critical perspective uh, on this really interesting film. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks so much, Dave. Great talking to you. Now we welcome to the Interpreter Podcast the director of Winter on Fire, Evgeny Efnievsky. Uh, Evgeny is coming to us live from Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Evgeny. Hi, guys. So uh, first and foremost, congratulations uh, on the Oscar nomination, and uh, even more so, congratulations on the film. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into the the. Uh, the, the context and, and how you produce the film and, and, and uh, sort of all the nitty-gritty. But first, can you, can you just tell us what it's like to get a call that you've been nominated for an Oscar? <laughs> you know, it was interesting. I was actually traveling. I was in Europe. I'm filming already something else. And uh, I literally landed uh, in the airport, just stepped, uh, basically just stepped on the ground, and I got a call. And uh, one of my best friends from New York, she was like, screaming on the phone from happiness and it it was interesting how all my friends were more more fighting more feeling for me it was uh, they're more nervous for me than i was i guess Mm. and it's it was it was amazing because it's recognition by the professionals by the top professionals of the industry recognition by the industry professionals of uh the same field Recognition as achievement. Recognition as you not only did something, but did something important and did something to the best quality possible. Mm-hmm. So it was a great feeling, and I'm proud that this is a achievement of my team, 
of entire team that have been with me in uh, Ukraine, been with me in United States, been in UK. So it's their achievement. It's achievement of my team for their quality, for their hard work. So it's a great feeling. Right, and we can we can uh, discuss this this at greater length, but it is an obviously uh, deeply collaborative film. Uh, it really comes across, and, and I, I'm sure that uh, it was it was a team effort in the most uh, profound sense. So, can you just bring us back to the the beginnings of this project? Uh, how, how did you decide to do it? Where, what was your relationship to uh, to the Euromaidan uh, revolution? Uh, bring us to that origin point, and then we can kind of talk it through and see how you ended up where you did. You know what? I, I not had any relationship to Yevromaidan. I actually was called by one of my friends who been producing with me movies before, and he by by this chance, by you know what, by some chance we can say, been there and uh, planning to do some stuff. And he called me on the first day and said, you know what, something happening here. It's a unusual. It's uh, not like Orange Revolution in just you should come we should make a movie hmm. and you know what i i had free time i jumped into the plane and i landed in kiev and we started to film we hired two sim uh cameraman with two camcorder cameras and we started to film and it was peaceful it was fun it was festival it was youth that came out in hope to being hurt by the government. Mm. They wanted to get from the government some attention. They wanted to voice their beliefs, their kind of desires to be a European Union. And uh, you know what? It was very energetic festival of young people. Uh, not political, self-organized. It was amazing, great energy. And you know what? I came for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, nobody was expecting that. 30 of November, 4 o'clock in the morning, we all got beaten. We all got brutally beaten, and uh, things started to unfold very spontaneous. Then situation kind of started to escalate, and then we realized that, you know what, the events happening here, it's not just events. It's a history that needs to be documented so I realized that I need to be on this ground, and it's not just two weeks. I need to be until the end, and I stayed there until the end. Mm. This is how it happens that I became a filmmaker who documented this history. Right now, there is a uh, in the credit, credits of the film. You, show, you, you acknowledge that that quite a few people uh, ended up taking footage. Can you talk a little bit about the the extent to which you were directly directing footage versus finding other people's footage, and, and what's the process of putting together a documentary that includes, uh, you know, that by necessity includes other people's footage? Uh, you know, we were, we were speaking earlier to uh, to a professor of, of film studies, and and we were remarking that there's a tremendous sense of continuity to this film. Uh, even though it comes from a variety of sources. Can you talk about that process of integrating your work uh, and, uh, and uh, the you know footage what? that you find Actually, elsewhere? I met, I met a lot of people there, and people trusted me. They trusted me because I had a vision and I had a desire to tell the story to the entire world. So literally all these people entrusted me and gave me the, their footage. They allowed me to kind of collaboration they allowed to be a part of this project and they became uh, cinematographers for my project because I was explaining to them what I want 
same time, uh, sometimes nobody was kind of getting from me directions because you know what? Every day the movement was growing. So mm. you need to have eyes on every second, on every place. So I had these eyes and it was these people, professionals and non-professionals who've been with different kind of equipments and who wanted to share their stories, voluntarily wanted to share their stories. And they became kind of my eyes, my cinematographers, some of them, at some points, were directed by me, and I was able to angle the cameras how I wanted to give more cinematic view. And look, some of them, uh, unfortunately, uh, were shooting on their own and just uh, getting me uh, footage because, oh, you know what, I was shooting this today because this happened and here's what I shot. And uh, this was a collaborative process. That's why I said that this nomination it belongs to entire team. It's it was a team effort. It's like Maidan was a unity of people. Togetherness made them to win. All together we created this film. So it's not was just acquiring footage. It was an ongoing process of uh, making the movie. That's why you have so much continuity. Hmm. And as uh, as. Uh Jim noted, this is, uh, for the most part, footage that we've not seen in news reports, we've not seen elsewhere. Uh, you, you really do have quite a, a collection of, of material that, that has, uh, to our understanding, never been, been put out anywhere else. Uh, did you have a, a, a big stack of stuff that you, you, you wanted to use, you couldn't quite work into the narrative? Uh, is, there, is there, I guess, is there, are, are the, uh, uh, the outtakes things that we might be seeing one day? Uh, you know what? Yes, probably, because I'm planning to do a short on Romka. Isn't he fascinating, this mm. young character? Yes, absolutely. And uh, what, what, uh, so, if you uh, can you tell us where he is actually now? What, what's the what's the update? This was a young uh, individual who was uh, was uh, playing a sort of really interesting, crucial role in the protests. You get to uh, learn about him in the film. Where is he at these days? Uh, you know what? There is anti-terrorist uh, operation, the war basically that's happening right now. So he's there. He's fighting. Mm. He's a fighter. Wow, okay. He never went back home. As much as his mom wanted to take him, as much as they tried to get him home, he never wanted to go back home. Mm. So, uh, there, this film does a, a remarkable job at putting you on the ground, giving you a sense of how events are unfolding. Uh, it has a, a really, as I mentioned, a remarkable continuity given the diversity of sources. Uh, but a choice that you uh, seem to have made here is to uh, put in a relatively minimal amount of, of political context. Uh, in specific, we don't really uh, get a great sense necessarily, for example, what the regime is thinking. Right? Why they're taking these actions? Uh, is that a decision that you made consciously, and why did you make that decision? You know what? I, from the beginning, wanted to tell story of the people who came, who stood, who stood for their beliefs, who stood their grounds despite the cold weather, despite police uh, batons, batons, despite uh, bullets that were flying over our shoulders, over our heads. So it's a story of the people, mm. people that united together in order to achieve their goal, common goal. This was, for me, very important to tell their story. I do try to interview some on other side. Like, you can see the cameras pointing to the police, but you can read their faces. They, A, not allowed to talk, and B, they don't want to talk. And I think their face is telling you everything. 
You can see by their mm. by their faces that the face is telling you everything. Their expressions. Now, I try to kind of interview opposition leaders, but you know what? Except PR, PR for their own parties, PR for for themselves. I not found anything in the speeches of these people. So I realized that I don't want to do any PR or any. PR for the parties or PR for the leaders. Mm. It's a human stories. It's a human beings who came there, who fought for their freedom, for their beliefs, for their values. And you know what? And that's why it's uh, their story. It's story through their eyes. No, absolutely. And that, that certainly does make sense. Uh, and it's, uh, it's very powerful in terms of, uh, the imagery and, and, uh, you know, the, the extent to which you, you really do step into the shoes, uh, for a brief moment in, in these people's lives. Uh, you know, you had mentioned that you were there when people started getting beaten. Can you just tell us a little bit more about, uh, you know, that, that balance between, you know, sort of being on the ground, being part of it, but also documenting it, uh, when you have such danger taking place, such sort of, uh, you know, in intense and, and really scary stuff going on around you. Uh, what is it uh, to keep working in those kinds of conditions? But you know what? A, I was in the same danger like everybody else. Mm. So, you know what? We've all been in danger. And B, you know, I felt their, their unity, their fascinating stories, their bravery made me to fall in love with them and it's kind of I felt obligated to tell their story. I felt responsibility since I started this to be there and document this. So I, as a filmmaker who... I felt that I need to complete my task. And that's why I've been there, despite all this horrible weather, despite police uh, sticks, despite uh, bullets. You know what? I felt responsibility. Despite injuries that I had, despite injuries that my team had, despite all this, I felt obligated to tell the story to the entire world. Because for me, this story is unique. This story blow my mind of fascinating unity, bravery. Because it's unity of all nationalities, all ages, all social classes. It's unity of uh, uh, church and the people all confessions together it was amazing unity that's true and and one of the one of the emphasis one of the emphases of the film something that you come to over and over again uh, is is the religious aspect of it which which might be a little bit surprising in that uh, you know from an outside perspective it doesn't seem like this was a religious story uh, but you are, are making a strong effort here to show that you have people from across uh, denominations from across different religions all working uh, together in the service of uh, the Euromaidan cause uh, what was your impulse to, to move down that direction and give so much screen time to religious figures I will tell you why. Because for the first time in my life, I see in church together with the people, without pushing them be belongs to a certain religion. Even if you will go right now to any temple or to any church in U.S. or somewhere, the church will try to invite you that you will become a part of it. Mm. There, it's never happened. There churches or church leaders never were trying to push you pursue any specific religion remember uh, for uh, from the beginning when the students got beaten they found the shelter in a church in a Mikhailovsky monastery and you know what Mikhailovsky monastery not was asking them oh 
Do you belong to our church? Are you believing in God? No. They just sheltered the kids and saved their lives. It doesn't matter if they are atheists or believers. They saved their lives, despite that most of the students, they are a younger generation that are not exactly believers in God. So it was a beautiful act that struck me. And then when the churches opened shelter, when all of confessions opened shelter, when people were with the churches together, and usually for me, who born in Russia, I saw usually church as the instrument for the government to control people. Here it was opposite. And it was fascinating to see all confessions, all religious no. together. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yevgeny, um, there will be uh, there will be critics of this film. I can already hear them. Uh, there will be critics of uh, there are critics of the uh, the Euromaidan protests. You know, there are people who say that uh, that this was a foreign uh, a foreign directed operation. Uh, that this was uh, you know about the European Union or the United States flexing their muscles. Um, that's not in this film. Uh, there are people who, uh, who would say that, uh, um, that there were a lot of, uh, far right wing, uh, nationalists like Pravi Sektor and, uh, and, and Azov that were, uh, you know, that were directing, uh, the revolution. Uh, they're not really featured in, in this film either. Um, what do you say to, uh, to, to, to these types of, uh, of critics? First of all, Pravi Sector was on Maidan, and they were fighting like everybody else. You can see in my movie the guy who is in black uniform, who was a uh, Sotny commander of the Jewish Sotnya, and he belongs to Pravi Sector, to the right wing. So... You know what? They were fighting exactly. And this is the biggest evidence, and I have it in the movie. So you can't say that they orchestrated that. And particularly that, you know what? Politicians not were allowed to the square from the beginning. And people were, from the beginning, standing on the square. Yes, 2004, Orange Revolution was a political event. But it was 2004, and it was completely different. Yes, people can say, but you know what? People can say based on what? I was there, and this is the fact. People can only speculate based on he, she say. I've been there, and i doing this through their own eyes. Yes, right wing was there, and they fought like everybody else. Now, who can say that this guy was uh, a, this 12-year-old kid was completely brainwashed by Americans, it's bullshit. You know what? He is barely writing or reading. And kids like him, I met a lot. So these kids who born in independent Ukraine, after the Ukraine became independent, they believed in better future. And they openly went under the bullets and nobody paid them. Because I read the articles where it was accused that United States brought a plane full of money and paid to the people. It's bullshit because you know what? Nobody can send 16-year-old kids under the bullets. For what yeah. money? It's bullshit. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, that your film does a very good job of, uh, of 
steering clear of the politics. You know, I was I was interested. Uh, I was particularly interested. I guess there's one politician who who makes a lot of uh, a lot of appearances on not a lot, but a few appearances in the film, um, which be would be uh, uh, Klitschko. Yeah. Um, uh, he doesn't look very good in your film, though. Um, maybe y- you could uh, you could talk uh, uh, more about your decision to uh, to feature Klitschko a bit. You know what, Klitschko, like all other leaders of opposition, was not on the favor of the people from the beginning. The people in in the favor of any of the leaders who proclaimed themselves leaders of Maidan, Vitali Klitschko was there, he's the figure that people knows from the sport. That's why I left him. He's not exactly a politician these days. He's mayor of the city. So I left him because he was uh, more on the side of the people than all other politicians. He tried to do things, but I'm not trying to portray him on the best way because he was, I tried to give him exactly the way how he was. And it's, uh, you know what, the documentary depicting things as they were progressing. It's basically a life of revolution. It's a, a, a live broadcast of revolution. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, what impressed me, and, you know, uh, I was a journalist who covered this live. And, mm-hmm. And the 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 energy, the enthusiasm of the of the protesters on the ground uh, was infectious, and the bravery of these people as as uh, as they were beaten, you know. And this was just really well captured in your film. I really have to commend you. You know, um, interesting things. Sorry that I'm uh, interrupting you. I met a lot of people here in the United States after watching movie. A lot of them were saying to me, "You know what? They're so brave. They're amazing." After watching the movie, you want to go and be with them. Their bravery inspiring you. Uh, absolutely, and and uh, and and a lot of you know. I'd be curious to uh, to to know whether or not you're interested in. Uh, are, are there any plans to make another documentary about Ukraine, uh, either about the war or about what's happened since? You know what, Maidan was very unique, universal thing. For me, it's universal because unity that I saw there blew my mind and I wanted to bring this unity to the international world, and I did it. War that's happening right now, it's the second chapter there, Fight for Freedom. Because first chapter, Fight for Freedom, on Maidan, they won. And right now, it's the second chapter. I don't think that I can do in one movie, uh, entire situation that happened since. Because each of the segments, Crimea, Boeing, Donetsk Airport, Mariupol, Ilovaisky Katyol, all of them is a huge subject by themselves. And to put it uh, separately, it's like two-hour movie each segment can be. So I'm I'm not planning. I'm actually doing something else right now. I'm shooting the Syrian refugees already. The Syrian refugees. Now that yes. that's that's interesting, Evgeny, because I was just talking about the fact. You know, I covered the, the uprising in in Syria as well, and you you said something just now. Uh, universal. 
that that the the that the the protesters are, are sort of universal in your film um, in the sense that they're these young, optimistic, uh, brave people who are standing up for uh, you know for what's right, and then uh, and then things happen to them, right? I, I think that's the sense absolutely. That. And 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 you know when I was watching your film, uh, I was struck that you know this could have been uh, Egypt or or uh, you know Listen, Egypt Syria. had this. Egypt had this Arab Spring. They had it. Yeah, right. So this is this is the universal uh, you know this is the universal uh, protester, and and by divorcing the politics from it. Um, uh, a little bit, right? Because you certainly do. You certainly focus on the people and more than the politics. That, no, that I'm it's focusing her- only the on the only on the people, mm-hmm. and certainly this can relate to a lot of things. I will tell you, even how it can be related to us, to American population. You know what? It is important for the uh, for younger generation that grows right now in the United States to remind for what our founding fathers of U.S. stood for for what they fought for. And I think here you kind of, it's mirroring exactly what is the real price of democracy and freedom or main values and for what our people stood for a long time ago. So it can be easy translated to that. It can be easy translated to Martin Luther King's movement because they also, his movement was also inside of his own home country fighting for freedom, for uh, all these uh, values. So it's also started peacefully and became violent. So it can be translated to that. I was last week in Vilnius, Lithuania, where 25 years ago, in 1991, it happened when Russian tanks and Russian Alpha was killing uh, civilians that were trying to uh, protect and protest uh, against uh, annexia of uh, the territory. So it's it's so universal that can be appealing to a lot of places. Evgeny, were you inspired? Had you seen uh, The Square, the, the movie? Course. And so can you tell us a little bit about the, the uh, influence that film had on you? Uh, yes, I did saw the Jahan Square because Jahan directed this and we are good friends. And uh, you know what? It, it's interesting how both movies started with the youth. But if you remember, on Tahrir, the Muslim Brotherhood betrayed its young generation, betrayed its young people, went and did pact with military government, and then achieved their goal during the re-elections, uh, achieved the goal and became, uh, and their leader uh, became new dictator even more worse than Mubarak, and uh, more and more protesters came out back to Tahrir. But again, you can see the difference that the unity in Ukrainian square, the unity of all nationalities and religion together without pushing people into religion, achieved the goal. In in, uh, Arab Spring, on Tahrir, Muslim Brotherhood, who was trying to implement Muslim religion, Islam, on the people, were pushing people. It's becoming more Islamic, the situation on Tahrir. Left them, betrayed them, 
and this betrayal brought more and more consequences. So you can see the differences between situations that unity can achieve a lot. And you know what? I United States we, that we will be more united, people of different racial races, people of different colors in uh, ethnic groups. Uh, uh, we're talking about diversity these days, but we need to be more united as one one community, as one nation. We call it United Nations, but why we are not united? Because united we can achieve more. Why, for example, Middle East, I was raised in Israel, can't be united like in my movie. So it's a lot of universal messages in this movie. So the film uh, is on Netflix. It has been nominated for an Oscar. Uh, it's obviously achieved, uh, you know, many of the things that, that any documentarian would want to. Uh, but what is your hope that uh, for the lasting impact of this film? What do you, what do you hope that its contribution is uh, in the bigger picture? You know what? That it can change lives. My hope that this can change lives of the people. That people can uh, achieve more by uh, implementing the unity, respect to each other. Operation can learn what is the real price of the values that we live in and uh, not take them for granted. It's like very nice. It's happening these days. That's very nicely said, Evgeny. Uh, we want to thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time. Uh, and uh, the, the most important thing we can say uh, to the audience here is to go find the film. Uh, Netflix is probably the easiest way uh, to get to it. And, uh, Evgeny, uh, congratulations. And uh, we, Thanks, are, we, we will be rooting and for you when the, when the Oscars roll around in a few weeks. Yes, congratulations. And thank you for, for making this film. I think it's very powerful. I think it's a very important story. Uh, and, uh, and and I think it was very well done. Uh, you and your filmmakers uh, were very brave. So thank you for your uh, – thank, thanks for this film. Thank you, guys. And thank you for spreading the word. And thank you for making this happen. Because you know what? It's important for all my filmmakers – who is my real heroes who been with me and who been my family there when your next film comes out you are absolutely invited to to come on and 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 tell us all about it we we look forward to it thank you thank you so much thank you well, we'd like to thank our guests on today's show, Professor Dave Risha uh, and Evgeny Efnievsky, uh, the director of Winter on Fire. Uh, really very much appreciate having, having them come on and, and give their perspectives on, on this really interesting film. Uh, any, final, any final things you want to say about the film, Jim? Um, you know, I, I, think that, uh, I think you should watch it. Yeah, I no, think I everybody think should watch this film. It's for many of you out there have have Netflix. Uh, it's well worth it. It's about an hour and, and forty minutes, and uh, uh, you yeah, won't re- and, you won't regret it, regardless no, of the politics. And, frankly, and you know, I, I think um, you know, uh, in in twenty eleven, the the person of the year, Times Person of the Year, was the protester, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I'm struck as someone who covered uh, protests in Iran in two thousand nine and twenty ten. Um, of course, Egypt and, and Syria and Libya and, and Bahrain in uh, 2012, 2011, 2012, and 2013. You know, I, I'm, I'm just struck. There's something universal in these people on the street, these young people. And, you know, they're not the political, they're not radical, they're not uh, right sector, they're not, um, uh, you know, uh, a NATO plot. Right, they're they're, not, they're, they're people with legi- legitimate they're, they're uh, not aspirations. Not, that's right. These yeah. are just 
people. They have very similarities in all of these countries, you know, um, uh, economic troubles, uh, but, but, but just like a, a hope and an optimism and, and uh, fearlessness you know, too. I mean, that's really what absolute, comes across. Just dead, dead bravery. Just absolutely. Yeah. Again, regardless of, of your stance on the, on the politics of this, uh, you watch the film, uh, you see people who really believe in what they're doing and are, are really willing to, uh, to take on just, uh, frankly, sacrifices that, that, uh, you know, I'm sitting here in my office in, in Boston and I, I could never, I could never even, uh, consider it it just seems impossible so uh it's uh, an aspect of of human experience that we we really uh you really should take the time to to you know experience uh you know secondhand uh quick bonus show jim let's do it so a couple weeks ago we did a contest in which uh, we predicted whether or not presidential candidates would have uh, longer or shorter odds uh, moving into the future. And um, I will give you an opportunity, Jim, to let you know how you did and how, let the, the audience know how you did and how I did. How did we do? Uh, well, I did fine, um, uh, which is probably bad for you and potentially also the world. Yeah, bad, so uh, you cut out a little bit. Uh, you did very well, which is bad for uh, bad, bad for, for me because I world. lost and bad for humanity uh, because all of your predictions came true and they were mostly uh, that uh, uh, what were your, what were, what were your, your good calls, Jim? Uh, well, let's see. I, I, uh, so basically the question was whether, uh, whether Trump and Cruz, who I think are uh, two very radical candidates, whether they would uh, rise up in the polls, and uh, and they have. Mm. Um, but the other thing that has happened is that many other candidates who uh, – and we're talking about the GOP nomination here. Yeah. Uh, many other candidates who were considered far more moderate um, fell significantly. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so basically uh, I had a certain optimism that uh, – establishment type candidates would would rise over the past few weeks uh you were more confident that uh what what is still considered sort of politically fringe but uh but sort of electorally mainstream or electorally popular uh you know you were confident that those characters would would do well and in fact they have yeah so so you know basically for those who maybe aren't as familiar with this issue okay is that you know uh donald trump um, who is a very fringe candidate, um, has been at the top of the polls for a very long time. But what happens with uh, with a lot of these polls early on is that a lot of people, especially uh, I want to say the more serious people, um, uh, are undecided. Yeah, that's true. A poll came out today from, from New Hampshire that uh, had Trump way ahead, but also said that only 30% of people were confident uh, in how they would vote. Right, so, and and, yeah. and the thought goes that right, and the thought goes that more traditional candidates will win, uh, will pick up these votes as people decide. Right, uh, but the problem with this that I keep pointing out is that the elections are now very very close. Yeah, it's getting and the there. Tr- the trend lines do not show this. There's no, no, there's no evidence that this is happening, and there there is evidence I think that some of these more moderate candidates who are polling very low are splitting the vote. Um, uh, but honestly, I'm not convinced that even if they weren't, um, that they would that they would be polling well. So, yeah, um, hate to tell you, yeah. but uh, <laughs> the 
the uh, the Ugh. optimists have proven to be wrong. Now, I, I think it's too early to say, uh, you know, that that Trump or Cruz are definitely looking at victory here. Yeah, uh, but I mean, I, we I said, will say we that, said Cruz from the start. I mean, on, on one of our first. Uh, uh, of the return episodes of this podcast, I, I remember going off on a rant, uh, uh, pointing to Cruz's chances. Yeah, and and I mean, look, so you know, Iowa is is eleven days from now, and it's Cruz and Trump way up, both of them. They're neck and neck. Uh, Cruz has been losing a bit of momentum. Uh, I just did an analysis that we'll include in 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 one of the links uh, associated with this podcast. Um, but um, but here's the thing: if Trump wins Iowa. He's de- he's he's going to win New Hampshire, and I think he rolls the whole board. Well, um, next week we will have an extended discussion uh, of Iowa. I'm sure. Uh, not sure to what extent uh, uh, the listeners out there are interested in in that, but but certainly it bears pretty considerably on American-Russian relations. So, uh, with that, we're up against it here, Jim. Let's uh, let's sign off for today. We'll be back next week uh, with a whole new show. All right. <laughs>